We are in Mark's Gospel, and we're going to look at uh, Mark chapter 6 in just a moment. Mark chapter 6, and starting from verse 30. And if you're sitting comfortably, I'll, I'll start reading. The blue buckets can continue on their rounds. Here we go. Uh, it says this, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they'd done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. Get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. It's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered... You give them something to eat. They said to him, Well, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Has anybody heard that before? Um, a familiar um, situation from Jesus' uh, ministry on earth. And we kind of begun to see, when we've been in uh, Mark chapter 6, um, an, a new phase that started a few verses earlier, where very much now the emphasis is on the disciples in training. So for a while, for the first five um, chapters of the book, The disciples have been watching and learning in that sense. But uh, a few verses ago, for the first time, Jesus sent his apostles out, sent this group of 12 ragtag followers, sent them out on their own uh, mission trip to really to put into practice what they'd been learning. Um, That They weren't just called to stand by and watch what Jesus did. They actually got to get stuck in themselves. That's what we've seen. We've seen, uh, We've seen them return back. To Jesus, and we've seen them uh, in verse 30 says that the apostles gathered around Jesus, reported to him all they had done and taught. We've seen, well, maybe there was a hint there that they're kind of putting the emphasis slightly on the wrong place. They, They went away, and we're told they preached the good news, they preached that people should repent, they anointed sick people with oil, and many of them were healed, and they cast out, um, many demons they were doing the stuff but when they get back to Jesus they're kind of saying look at what we've done now they've gone back we'd see naturally it was Jesus who gave them authority it's Jesus who's been leading them it's Jesus who's been teaching them and what accounts for 
the, the miracles, what accounts for the, the fruitfulness of their first mission trip is that Jesus had given them authority. This was God at work in them rather than just what, they don't, what they'd done themselves. But we're seeing here the disciples in training and we can answer the kind of the big question, well, how did they partner with Jesus? How did they work together with Jesus? On the, on the one hand, we're saying discipleship is not just about watching Jesus do what he does. Jesus, well, he's just the perfect teacher, the perfect minister, so we're there to kind of back him up and support him, but we kind of passively watch as he gets on with his sovereign mighty deeds. So is discipleship that kind of passivity on the one hand? Fold your arms and watch. No. On the other hand, we go to the other extreme and think it's all about, well, it's about me, it's about my talents and my resources, my energy, and this is what I'm doing. I'm doing this for Jesus. Um, uh, Maybe the disciples have gone from one extreme over to the other, and now a slight kind of hint of arrogance. This is what, you know, this, this is our time has come. Uh, we've got it sewn up. We've seen Jesus, but now, yeah, we're moving on. We're doing our own kind of independent thing. And true discipleship is neither um, one extreme or the other. And we're going to see that as they, we've got this um, time of training for um, the disciples. The Christian faith for all of us is not a spectator sport on the one hand, where we just think, well, Jesus can do what he wants. He's God. He's sovereign. That's fine. So if he wants to heal people, that's great. If he wants people to know about the gospel, uh, somehow he can reveal it. Um, we, our part to play is kind of spectating and watching. Um, that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is neither kind of me and my effort, me and my work. Um, I can go and be impressive on my own. We are called to be Jesus, well we are, Jesus' body, his hands and feet. So we're connected to him, but we're involved. We've got a part to play. Um, so again, we've got this question, how do we, as disciples of Jesus, with all our imperfections, all our limitations, how do we serve God's purposes on the earth? There's the question. We're going to arrive at an answer as we work through um, the passage. We'll see a few things as we go through that are important for us in our training, in our progress, in our learning as disciples of Jesus. The first thing we see is this. The disciples need to spend time with Jesus. Wonderful. We see that right at the outset. Verse uh, 30, 31, 32. Jesus takes his disciples on a retreat. They've just had a busy time. They've been away on their first trip. Um, they've been doing the stuff. And... Uh, But now it's time, Jesus knows, it's time to get alone, be with the twelve, away from busyness, away from lots of competing uh, demands. It is simple, practical, important stuff. They need to rest. They need to eat and they need time to talk. So what is important for us as disciples of Jesus, growing in our fruitfulness, being involved in his kingdom, actually the first thing... We're, look, we're looking at in this passage is get time with Jesus. Get time and rest. Um, be with him. It's, in, it's interesting that in a sense, Mark, in telling this story, puts more emphasis there than what actually the disciples have got up to. So we hear that the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him 
all they had done and taught. At that point, we might expect loads of stories, loads of testimonies, loads of examples of what they've been doing. Peter was doing this, and James and John were doing that. And no, it's like, well, that's great. But more important than what they have been doing and the details of their success, more important is they get time with Jesus and they, they get refreshed uh, with him. The same call is there for us in our lives. It's easy to get caught in a trap where even for the kingdom's sake, I'm do, doing, 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 do, 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 busy, busy, busy. Lots of stuff going on. There's no time to rest. There's no time to pray. There's no time to enjoy God's word. There's no just time to sit and chat. There's no time to eat. It's just the demands are too much. I've got to go. I've got to do. And again, it can kind of put the em- emphasis on us, kind of making us kind of indispensable. Well, actually, put the emphasis where Mark puts it. Fruitful disciples enjoy their relationship with Jesus. And Sometimes we can see rest as something we do as unspiritual. So we spend time with Jesus, but actually a day of rest is kind of, well, what's Jesus got to do with a day of rest? I'm just crashing out, thanks very much. Now we need to kind of relax, but actually we're involving Jesus in our rest. Um, If you look at John and chapter 15, Jesus speaking to his disciples there said this, John 15 verse 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All our busyness, all our scurrying around, all our good intentions can actually be nothing if they're apart from Jesus. If they're not coming from a place of remaining in him, of abiding in him and enjoying him. But... Question, what do we do when life takes an unexpected turn? It's all well and good. Yeah, I had the intention. The plan was there to get some time with Jesus. The plan was there, but life happens. We're not, con- we're not in control of everything. We, can't, you know, we like to use diaries and schedules and all the rest of it, but they don't always work because stuff happens that's unexpected, that couldn't have been predicted. Here we are, so... What are we going to do now? Best laid plans get interrupted. I had a wonderful plan for Friday morning, getting in God's word and just, just preparing in prayer. And uh, actually, we needed to take Sam to the doctor. And they said, well, sorry, we don't have any appointments, but he's still sick. Well, there's an appointment now because someone's cancelled, but you won't be able to get in here in time. We'll get there in time. We'll see you in three minutes. Okay, right. Dan, can you drop me off? Yes, let's go. Thank goodness Rachel's got her keys. Rachel's thinking, thank goodness Dan has got his keys. And neither of us had our keys. Um, So we shut the door and went to the doctors and we got the antibiotics and we realised we don't have the keys. How are we going to get in? Thankfully, Rachel left some windows open. (laughs) Upstairs. And they're like, there's a safety feature. So, you know, you can't just prise them open all the way. You've got to try, you know, get some catch on the inside. And thankfully, our neighbours were in. And thankfully, they had a ladder. And thankfully, Jed stood at the bottom of that ladder while I climbed up. And it kind of went far enough. But the top of the ladder was not right up to the window. Um, so, you know, got a stick, arm in the window, trying to press this little button so I can open it the whole way. That's not going to work right. Break the window, we're in. And uh, so there comes a moment where it's like, well, I can't, I can't quite get up. So I'm kind of like this. <laughs> over the window. I can't reach into the house. 
and I can't quite get up. So it's like this moment of no return. We've just got to go for it. This is taking a long time as well. And uh, there's Jed and Dot at the bottom of this, uh, and others passing by, workmen on the street, but that's it. Legs and bottom flying in the air, trying to get in the window, and this is just taking a little bit too long. So, uh, best laid plans go to waste, sometimes in a funny way. Actually, I wasn't very amused at the time. <laughs> that's kind of more irritated. This isn't productive. There's stuff to do. I'm supposed to be fruitful for the kingdom, but all I've done is panic and break into my own house. Um, <laughs> So, life takes un- un- unexpected turns, which we didn't predict, which are unexpected. What are we going to do now? What are we going to do that when all our best lay plans of spending time with the Lord have just um, gone through it? Well, that's what the disciples are faced with, spending time with Jesus. But then they have this interruption. So they've gone away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place in verse 32. And then we find out what happened in verse 33. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Now, the Sea of Galilee is not, like, massive. And maybe rowing a boat kind of away from one busy town to go and find a place of solitude, it it would take a while. If they were kind of going against the wind, it's a bizarre scenario. In a sense, you think, well, okay... People saw them going. People are so hungry. People are so desperate to get time with Jesus. They abandon all of their plans and they just run. And somehow news spreads and people gather from all the towns and they're running. You kind of wonder, how far did they have to run? How fast did they run that they could get to wherever they were going ahead of Jesus? And his, uh, and his 12, so that when Jesus lands, they see this large crowd. Wow! At this point, I wonder what they were thinking and feeling. The disciples are like, we've been busy. We know too we need to get time with Jesus. For some reason, when they were there, perhaps they were back in the house in Capernaum, they did not even have a chance to eat. And I think, well, what would have to be going on to stop me or stop you from eating. There's just, it's that busy, there's no time even for that. Um, maybe all kind of cooking equipment has packed away uh, into cupboards because there's so many people wanting time with Jesus. So they've, been, they've come out of that time of, of hectic busyness to get to the other side of the lake and now they find that a crowd of about 5,000 men and women and children too. So this massive crowd has gathered. You can imagine what the disciples are thinking. How's Jesus going to see? The disciples need to spend time with Jesus. But also, secondly, the disciples need to uh, learn from Jesus' example. What does Jesus model right now? Jesus landed and saw a large crowd and had compassion on them. Jesus cares for the crowd. He had compassion on them. That compassion is a powerful kind of gut-churning concern that leads him to do something, leads him to action. This is not a a kind of concern that was like, well, I, I can see what's going on, but life's busy, so I'm wishing you the best, but I'm not doing much about it. Jesus is doing something about it. He is compassionate. He's 
he's kind of filled up and it's coming out of him with this strong inward concern. He's concerned, he's compassionate because he sees these people are like sheep without a shepherd. Now a sheep that doesn't have a shepherd is vulnerable. It's in a bad place. It's interesting because in our culture, in our day, actually that's probably what we most like or people express actually I don't, I don't want to be part of the crowd, part of a flock. I'm doing my own thing. I want to go where I want to go, uh, with who I want to go with, uh, when I want to go, how I want to go. I don't please myself. I'm not under somebody else's oversight. We don't really appreciate government. So as soon as a new one comes in, it's only bad news, whichever colour or persuasion they were. It's like we don't really like authority. We don't trust leaders. That's kind of what's in our culture. Um, and so what we prize is our individualism. But you get right here, Jesus looks at the crowd and says, look at this bunch of scattered individuals. They've got no shepherd. This is a disastrous place for them to be. They're vulnerable. And that's why he's so concerned. And that's a concern uh, right through scripture. So go back to Numbers, the book of Numbers in the Old Testament and chapter 23. Actually, I think I marked it. And Moses it's just, it's just been revealed to Moses the promised land that the people of God are about to go into, but it's also been revealed to Moses he's not going himself. He's going home. He's getting called to glory. And what's the first thing on Moses' mind? What's the first request that he makes to God? In Numbers 27, verse 16, he says, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. The worst thing that could happen is that God's people didn't have a shepherd. And uh, God says, well, take Joshua, son of Nun, appoint him, and uh, he will lead the people. Um, He'll be the shepherd. He'll be that man. Do you know what Joshua means? Yahweh is salvation. God saves. Do you know what Jesus means? It's the same. It's the Aramaic Greek version of exactly the same name. So you think, actually, throughout their history, they had some good kings, some good shepherds, like Joshua. And then, actually, for a long time, scattered, no leaders. And then maybe, you know, David comes along. Basically, good guy, good king, man after God's own heart, makes mistakes, but leads well. And then just an era by which occasionally there's like a bright spot but mainly bad leaders and Ezekiel speaks into this sad and sorry situation in Ezekiel chapter 33 and says uh, the, the word it says there the, the word of the Lord came to me verse 1 uh, verse 2 son of man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel prophesy and say to them this is what the sovereign Lord says Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. There's a, a declaration of judgment on a nation that's only had, or on the whole, has had just bad shepherds looking after themselves. 
come into Mark's Jesus day on earth, the people are hungry, the people are desperate for Jesus because, well, we've had enough of Rome. Tyrant, brutal leaders. We've had enough of Herod and other so-called kings. Brutal and tyrants and interested in themselves. And we read earlier in chapter 6 about this great banquet that Herod puts on for the high officials and the people are hungry. The people are hungry for a good leader. The people are hungry to be loved and looked after and led and shepherded. And so Jesus cares. Now there's a hint, uh, actually John brings it out more in his gospel, that perhaps the people are gathering because they're, they're wanting to make Jesus king by force. Now Jesus isn't going there, but he cares for the people. He's become their shepherd. That's where Ezekiel was pointing. Uh, later on in Ezekiel chapter 34, God would say, actually that's why I'm coming. I will come. I will shepherd my people. I will look after them. I will love them. I will lead them. I will protect them. I will bless them. And so we have Jesus coming, the shepherd of God, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the eternal shepherd of the sheep. He comes to feed them, feeds them spiritually, he teaches, and he's going to feed them physically as we're going to see. But, another question, or interruption. Well, that's great. Jesus is all of those things. Jesus is a wonderful shepherd. Jesus is unique. And we aren't Jesus. So our responses are, we've learnt, less than perfect. So it's great having Jesus around, but if we're not coping, we don't react well to these unexpected interruptions. Jesus is this amazing shepherd, but actually we're sheep. We've got needs we need looking after. The disciples in this situation are tired. They've been busy going on their mission trip. They've come back and they've gathered to Jesus and it's not a peaceful environment. There's loads going on. And then they, so they've got onto the boat and then they've been rowing across the Sea of Galilee. It's hard work. They're absolutely exhausted. They're hungry. For some reason, they weren't able to eat when they got together with Jesus at the beginning of this passage. So they've rowed over the other side of the sea. They're tired and they're starving. They need something to eat. They've got limited resources. They've not brought that much with them, if anything. they limited energy and probably as a result, limited patience. They're grumpy. And Jesus is asking the impossible. So actually it's because the disciples care. They've gone up to Jesus and said, well, it's, it's getting late in the day now, Jesus. And this is a remote place. Can you see that? They're almost, Jesus is the leader, but they're trying to point out, Jesus, be, be more responsible here. The way of caring for these people now, it's great that you've been teaching them, but come on, be reasonable. Everybody's hungry. Everybody's tired. Everybody ran here and they didn't bring much with them. So the kind and responsible and reasonable thing to do is to send people away. Let them go to the towns and villages around because where we are right now, it's not agricultural land. There's nothing here we can put our hand to. So people have got to go and get something to eat. And then Jesus says, 
You give them something to eat. I'm sorry, are you mad? That's impossible, Jesus. We can't do that. And so they're, they're, because of their limitation, because they're hungry, because they're tired, they're irritated. And you kind of get that as they uh, kind of saying to him, well, what? Verse 37, that would take eight months of a man's wages to feed this massive crowd. 200 denarii, apparently. But even if they had that kind of money, it's kind of saying, well, surely you, don't, you wouldn't expect us to spend that amount of money on a, a big crowd of strangers who are soon to disappear and won't be seen again, probably. Would you, and, and if we did have that kind of money... We can't just go to the local supermarket just around the corner. We will have to travel to any number of towns and villages to go and find food and buy it and bring it back and then start distributing it amongst this massive crowd. So quite frankly, Jesus, you ask the impossible, and this is ridiculous. Could you please be a little bit more reasonable in your expectations? So what are we to do? Jesus demonstrates this amazing example, this wonderful model of caring for the crowd, but what are we supposed to do? Because we don't have that much. And quite frankly, there will be times when we feel personally, look, it's not that I don't care about this situation. It's not that I don't care about other people. It's that I don't have it in my power to do anything. So please, send the people away. Give me a break. And maybe it comes in other ways. We can feel that God is asking the impossible. So you give them something to eat. Well, there are other things in the gospel that Jesus commands that quite frankly feel impossible a lot of the time. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Love your enemies. Sorry? What? Luke 6, something else. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. You know, if, if there's kind of some sin, be it anger or lust or something else, and it's, it, it, that's what's going on in your life, do something drastic. Cut it off. Get rid of it. But it, what it, temptation is tempting, isn't it? So what do you mean? Or another command from Jesus, do not worry about your life. Well, Jesus, be a little bit reasonable, come on. So what we do with the Christian faith and Jesus' teaching, is we, we kind of say, well, that's the ideal, that's the model, and um, that's great, but on the quiet and reading in between the lines, surely he doesn't expect this. And we read through other books in the New Testament, we get to um, Ephesians, and it says... Uh, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another as the Lord's forgiven you. Well, that's a wonderful ideal, Lord Jesus, but come on, really? Forgive this? Forgive them? I've wrestled with that all my life. I've not managed that so far. It's impossible. It's impossible. to Children, obey your parents. Honour mum and dad. Oh, come on, Jesus, be reasonable here. <laughs> they're far from perfect and sometimes that's just not possible parents, fathers, don't exasperate your children don't embitter them but, I, but I'm tired and I'm weary and it's the end of a long day and why is it when I'm tired they are the, they're most giddy it's not reasonable Lord, it's impossible 
quite often we can feel like that. And it can feel like actually the Christian life is drawing us into one ongoing miracle. It's not just feeding 5,000. It's we can't do this. We don't have the resources. We don't have the energy. We don't have the character. We can't. It's not possible what we are asking. Well, let's look now at what happens in this situation and apply it in a whole variety of different ways in our lives. Disciples need to spend time with Jesus. Disciples need to learn from Jesus' example. Disciples need to take small steps of faith, doing ordinary things, believing that God will do what only he can do. What do I mean? Let's look at the passage. I love the way Jesus gives this bold, stark command, you give them something to eat. What? And then step by step, he leads them through a process by which the disciples will be enabled to give them something to eat. This is Jesus and his disciples working together. This isn't Jesus taking it out of their hands and just doing it himself because he's the saviour. This is him training up his disciples. This is Jesus training us in following him. What happens? Firstly, Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So their first step is something very, very practical. This is all ordinary stuff. This is not yet a miracle. Go and find out what you have, okay? We have looked, we have searched, We've spoken to people and we have drummed up five loaves and two fish. It's not very much. Actually, it's not even enough for the disciples themselves. This is not a meal for 12 plus Jesus, let alone this massive crowd. But they've done the first thing that Jesus asked them to do, which they could do. Then what does Jesus say? Step two, have all the people sit down. Oh, hang on a minute, Jesus. That's only going to raise people's expectations, you do realise. We've just shown you what we have, it's not very much, and you are now leading us to lead the people into expecting to have a meal. This is ridiculous, but okay. Notice, no miracle has taken place yet. This is another ordinary step. Do something practical. Make the people sit down in groups of hundreds and Hundreds and fifties, all very ordered, but the disciples are called to do something. If God doesn't come through for them now, they will look foolish. And that's how God loves to work, by faith. I think what we would like is to have the miracle first, before our eyes, and then we've got the confidence to step out and speak to the people and say, you come, sit down. Oh yes, we have got a feast for you. It may just be bread and fish, but it's just come out of nowhere. Um, Now we like that, don't we? So we like, you know, come God, fill me with your Holy Spirit, so I'm so kind of angelic and empowered, I can speak to anyone about my faith. I'll pray for the dead and they'll be raised, because... I've become a superhero. And we'd like that to be the case. Lord, I don't want to do something ordinary that risks me getting egg on my face. I want to know you've already done a miracle and then I'll step out. Jesus would like us to work the other way around. Ah, doing ordinary things that implicate us 
that are a risk. And we put ourselves in a position where God has to come through or we look a wally. Thirdly, what happens then? The, Jesus takes the loaves and the fish. The disciples, the twelve, give Jesus what they have. What does Jesus do with it? He takes it, he looks up to heaven, he gives thanks, he blesses it, and then he breaks up the bread and the fish and he gives it back to the disciples. Question, has a miracle taken place yet? No. This is how any mealtime could start. Father, for what we're about to receive, may the Lord make us truly grateful. My grandfather always used to say, he's, he's done what any head of the household would do at the, at the start of a meal. Now, some would see that and would say, look, that points forward. See where this is heading. In a few chapters' time, we'll arrive at another meal where Jesus is gathering his twelve and it's the, it's the last supper and Jesus will take the bread and take the wine. He'll take the bread and he'll break it. He'll give thanks for it. He'll break it and he'll give it back to the disciples and say, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's pointing forward to another meal. It's pointing forward to who Jesus is. It's, it's pointing forward to the fact that Jesus... Or God blessed Jesus and broke Jesus and gave him to us that we might know salvation. But it's also a picture of what God does with our lives. What does God do? He takes us. He blesses us. He forgives us. Gives us a completely new identity and a, and a new destiny with him. We're new creations in him. And then what does he also do? Actually breaks there are things in our lives that get broken up. Our character gets work, worked on or our stubbornness. And then he takes us and he gives us out uh, to bless other people. That's what Jesus did to this bread. And then says the disciples, start to share it. Start to distribute what you have. And that's the point at which the miracle begins to take place. The disciples put their resources into Jesus' hands. We're to put our lives in Jesus' hands. Jesus, I don't have very much. I'm not very good with words. I'm not very confident. I'm not an outgoing person. I can't explain the doctrine of salvation to like every point and issue in Scripture. Um, but here's what I do have. Uh, and here's that which I have understood. And it's not much, but I'll go with that. And that is what multiplies. The disciples are not passive, but now no longer are they just doing their own thing. They play an active role in this miracle that happens. Where does this all lead us? The big point, if you like. Nothing is impossible with Jesus. Jesus can do a very lot with a very little. He knows how to provide in utterly remarkable ways in response to steps of faith, which can look quite ordinary. Uh, I don't know if you've read any of the life and times of George Muller. Um, he did lots of practical things, like building orphanages and feeding people. Uh, there were many times when 
the day would begin and they have a little bit of bread and a little bit of milk and they needed to feed hundreds of orphans in the 1800s. And he didn't go fundraising and uh, put out some big mail shot to the Christian universe. He prayed. They would gather and pray and see God's uh, provision. Maybe even on occasions, set the table. We don't have any food, but set the table. Get things ready. God's going to provide. Then to be in the receiving end of God's provision. And sometimes the figures don't really make sense as you read it back. It's like, they're, you know, we don't have any money, but somebody came by and gave us three shillings uh, or two pounds. Well, praise God, I think. Obviously, it's a bit different today, but we've got here in this story, in this account of what happened, figures that we can understand. 5,000 men plus women and children and only five loaves and two fish. Not even enough for the 12 to have a decent meal. But look, this passage starts with hungry disciples. How does this passage end? Each disciple has one big basketful of leftovers. They shared what they had, and they themselves receive an abundance. Again, God delights to provide off the back of faith. Lord, we don't have very much. He's able to multiply um, and bless in any situation. So it's interesting that Mark doesn't tell us that the crowd were amazed. Often that's how uh, big miracles resolve. The, the kind of the final punchline is everyone was amazed at Jesus and spoke well of him. That doesn't happen here. Maybe that would even mean the, disciple, uh, the crowd weren't aware that a miracle was taking place. They were just aware of somebody came round to their group of 150 uh, and, and, and gave them some bread and some fish. They weren't actually paying that much attention. This is the disciples that understand it. It's the disciples that see it. This is the disciples in training with Jesus. I don't want you just to be passive and uninvolved and pray to a sovereign God, do whatever you will, but quite frankly, we can't help. It's all about you. Neither is it this kind of extreme kind of arrogance, we can do all things, leave this to us. It's active, ordinary faith. Not kind of taking our Christian faith and just making it reasonable. Oh, Jesus, don't expect so much, please. The ideal is out there, but you can't be serious. Of course, we can't love our enemies all the time. Of course, we're going to worry. Of course, mum and dad are difficult from time to time, and I let them know. Uh, Of course, I can't share my faith. I'm an introvert. I don't really do conversation unless, I don't know. Um, And we can settle for unspectacular Christian life. Now, God is not saying to us, be remarkable, and then I can use you. Be super talented in a whole variety of ways, and then I have a place for you. You say, no, be yourselves, be ordinary, and trust me, and follow the promptings that I give you, uh, that that God gives us in in our situation, in our context, in our family, in our workplace, in our neighbourhood. Believing or putting ourselves in a position by faith where if God doesn't come through, we look a wally. That's disciples in training. That's what we're called to do and be a part of. Where we're, we're called out of just the realm of that which is merely reasonable and pragmatic. 
into his kingdom where all things are possible. Might be to do with resources. Might be to do with sharing our faith. But it's true of our lives, full stop. What we have, we give to him. Trusting the blessing that he's given, he's going to use to us to bless bless others. Jesus can do the impossible. Amen? Amen. Why don't we worship God together? How about we stand? We'll uh, spend some time just in response.